Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for May 24th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. A court order is reducing the backlog at the ALJ, and there's a new judge. But is there more? Healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler reports our lead story. President Biden is expected to announce today that the U.S. will send 20 million more doses of COVID-19 vaccines to countries in need. But what about vaccine rates among members of the House of Representatives? Matthew Albright is standing by with his legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Helen Tanksamnik, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. CMS is reporting that the public health emergency continues to impact kids and Medicaid beneficiaries. This at a time when the agency says mental health conditions have worsened nationwide. In the meantime, CMS is offering guidance on how states can receive enhanced funding provided through the American Rescue Plan Act. This to increase access to home and community-based services for Medicaid beneficiaries. And in response to a court order, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals is working to free the logjam that exists at the administrative law judge level of appeals. So how far back do some of these cases go? Healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler, who joins us later in the broadcast, has a hearing tomorrow. He's going to be preparing for clients whose dates of service go back to 2009 and 2010. We have much news to report. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. First up today, CMS is modifying their plans for expanding the prior authorization program for spine neurostimulators. You now only need to get prior auth for the implantation of the leads for the trial run, but not for the implantation of the permanent neurostimulator. It sounds great, but if the trial implantation was not done in the hospital outpatient department with a prior authorization, then you do have to get a prior authorization for the permanent placement. See, I'm just confused about it. So if you do these procedures, be sure you read the CMS site very carefully. Next, the Office of the Inspector General has made my list again, this time with several items. First, they're going to study the financial impact of extending the transfer DRG program to all 767 DRGs and not just the 280 currently specified by CMS. That program reduces the hospital's payment if the patient goes to a nursing home or gets home care after discharge and the length of stay is more than one day shorter than the geometric mean length of stay for the DRG. But let me save the OIG time. Yes, of course it's going to save the trust fund money, but is it the right thing to do? Second thing they did was an audit of cardiac and pulmonary rehab claims. They selected one hospital, the one with the third highest number of claims in the country, and they audited 100 claims of theirs. They found a 100% error rate. They then, of course, extrapolated that 4% sample of their claims to all of their claims and state that they were overpaid $2.7 million. Then they went on and extrapolated that one hospital's findings of 100% error rate to every hospital in the country and concluded that not one single claim for cardiac or pulmonary rehab was paid to anyone in the audited years 
and met requirements. And that means CMS overpaid $626 million. Now, fortunately for once, they did not blame the hospitals and ask for the money back. They actually said it was CMS's fault and that their guidance was faulty and they told CMS to fix it. Then there were three audits of hospice organizations. And in all these cases, the issue was documentation of the patient's terminal illness and life expectancy of less than six months. But one of the audits had some case examples, such as a 96-year-old with class four heart failure, a 94-year-old with colon cancer, an 89-year-old demented patient with a BMI of 16 who required around-the-clock morphine for pain. There's not one single physician that can look at a patient and exactly predict when they're going to die. But in some cases, the presence of a terminal condition with a life expectancy of six months is self-evident. And to deny payment to a hospice and then extrapolate to millions of dollars in overpayments, as they do, is only going to result in the lack of access to end-of-life care for beneficiaries. Finally, a Virginia gynecologist was sentenced to 59 years in prison for fraud. He was found guilty, per the Department of Justice, of performing unnecessary, irreversible hysterectomies. I got to ask, are there reversible hysterectomies? Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Happy Monday. 2020 was an odd year for Rack and Mac audit. Well, it was an odd year for everyone. After trying five virtual trials, each one with up to 23 witnesses, it seems that slowly but surely we're getting back to normalcy. A telltale sign of fresh normalcy is in-person defense of healthcare regulatory audit. I'm defending a rack audit of a pediatric facility in Georgia in a couple weeks, and the clerk of court said, come in person. Even when we specifically requested a virtual trial, we were denied with the explanation that Georgia is open. Now, virtual trials are cheaper and more convenient, and clients don't have to pay for hotels and airlines, but the in-person audits may be back. We do have a few new players and a few new rules. March 26, 2021, CMS awarded Performant Recovery, the incumbent, a new RAC Region 1 contract. On March 16, 2021, CMS announced that it's going to temporarily restrict audits to March 1, 2020, dates of service and before. So the Medicare audit will not be yet dipping its toes into auditing claims with dates of service from March 1st to today, probably because so many COVID exceptions exist and getting into those dates of service is going to be a sticky matter. Now, as you are aware, the RACs can review post or prepayment basis. You would rather post than pre. They are supposed to detect fraud, waste, and abuse. And no matter how big or small a facility is, you are subject to audits at the whim of the government. Yet, as we all know, RACs are paid on a contingency basis, approximately 13%. When the RACs were first created, the RACs were compensated based on the accusations of overpayments, not the amounts that were truly owed after an independent tribunal. As any human could surmise, the contingency payment creates an overzealousness 
that can only be demonstrated by my favorite case in my 21 years. It was in New Mexico, and it was against one of my favorite nemesis, uh, PCG, Public Consulting Group. A behavioral health care provider was accused of over $12 million overpayment after we presented before the ALJ in New Mexico Administrative Court. The ALJ determined that we owed $896.35. The 99.23% reduction was because of the following. We showed there was a faulty extrapolation. We, uh, the PCG had reviewed approximately 150 claims out of 15,000 claims between 2009 and 2013. Once the error rate was defined as 92%, the base error only equaled $9,812. The extrapolated amount equaled well over $12 million. And our expert statistician rebutted the error rate being so high. Once the extrapolation is thrown out, we're now dealing with a much more reasonable amount of only 9000 Once we have it down to that, we just attack the underlying clinical denials. So these 150 claims that we walked through that PCG claimed were denials, and we just proved PCG wrong. Examples of their errors included denials based on lack of staff credentialing, when in reality, the auditor just couldn't read the signature. Other denials were erroneously denied based on the application of a wrong policy year, things like that. The upshot is that we convinced the judge that PCG was wrong in almost every denial PCG made. In the end, the judge found we owed $896.35, not $12 million. Little bit of a difference there, but we appealed anyway. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fixander, David Glazer, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walker, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's May 24th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. For too many years, too many people have gotten condition code 44 wrong, completely wrong. An error that results in lost time and effort involving multiple departments in your facility. Fortunately, an on-demand webcast on condition code 44 is the single source of education to clear up decades-long confusion on the use of this controversial code. You'll learn how to apply condition code 44 correctly when you attend this important webcast. Register now for access to Condition Code 44, Learn How to Get It Right, led by physician advisor Dr. Julia Tugarte-Hopkins. She uncovered the reason why so many hospitals got it wrong for nearly 20 years and how you can get it right. The webcast is available on demand at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, once again this morning, what could possibly be risky? Well, Chuck, it's the same thing that was risky last week. So last week's segment about how CMS had withdrawn language in the claims processing manual describing shared visits generated a ton of really good questions. So let's work through some of them. So the first one is, how do you stay on top of developments like this? I wish I had a perfect answer. It's something I've struggled with for years. So one option is to periodically check the web page where CMS lists all of its transmittals. Emily has put that under the links tab, which is on the left side of the page if you're live. If you're listening to the podcast, you can find it in the show notes. You can also set up a Google alert 
which you can either do on a particular topic or you could do it for CMS transmittals. But I'll tell you what I do. First, I listen to Ron Hirsch, who was my source for this breaking news, and I pay attention to a show you might be familiar with, Monitor Monday, where I routinely learn a lot. I also religiously read Nina Youngstrom's report on Medicare compliance. But candidly, staying on top of stuff like this is hard. Like I said last week, I learned about this from Ron you know, shortly before going on the air. So the next question is whether this has any impact on encounters in physician offices. It doesn't. While the old manual language had some confusing, dare I even say misleading, language about split and shared billing in the office and clinic setting, the fact of the matter is, if you ever have a situation where a physician and a non-physician practitioner see the patient in a clinic on the same day, it can be considered incident two unless that physician and every other physician in the clinic leave the office suite sometime during the encounter, leaving the non-physician practitioner alone in the office. That seems highly improbable. Whatever label you use to name it, when a physician sees a patient in the office work by professionals at the same, on the same date, all bundle into your visit code. You could view it as incident two or the natural result of the instructions to have one E&M encounter per specialty per day. The next question I got is, hey, David, I Googled the claims processing manual chapter 12, and I don't see what the heck you're talking about. The language is still there. This highlights one of the perils of Googling things. You don't always get the most recent version. Moreover, you can't even tell whether you've got the most recent version. Now, in the past, I've discussed how if you're Googling regulations, it's vital that you use the ECFR site. That's like e, the letter E, CFR. That site, an official government source, tells you when it was most recently updated. Unfortunately, I don't know a manual site that tells you when it was last updated. Now, when you look at a manual section, there is language in the top in red that tells you when that section was last revised. Unfortunately, that doesn't help you if you do something like find the version that was last revised July 25th, 2019. You'll have no way of knowing that it was really updated on May 3rd of this year. I don't have a great suggestion for avoiding this, except making sure you're at the CMS website and clearing your cookies. Because if you get this wrong, it may make you want to toss your cookies rather than just clear them. Finally, I've been asked a lot, so what the heck do we do now? And that's another one where I don't have a rock-solid answer. The first thing I'd do is check with your Medicare administrative contractor. WPS has explicitly said they're allowing shared visits. With that guidance, I'd continue. If your contractor hasn't offered the guidance, I think I'd still continue, but I'll acknowledge it's a bit fuzzier. In a few weeks, I'll have a segment about the current state of the law when it comes to relying on contractor advice. In the meantime, I may find myself relying on my life motto, everything in life is a good time or a good story, and humming some Kelly Clarkson. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. 
Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. So I'm giving you fair warning. I'm on a tear today. So much happens in the state of the social determinants of health and mental health. And last week was no exception. In fact, every week, there's another study, if not five or 10, that speak to the glaring disparities caused by gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, as well as socioeconomic status, disability, trauma, and then some. Then another five or 10 headlines emerge, each with their own twist of the data. At the end of the day, we see articles that start with the words, social determinants of health may be associated with. The past week saw the following, safety net profitability, access to appropriate mental health, access to virtual health amid COVID-19, stroke mortality, longstanding access to care issues for seniors, less than optimal care in rural communities, increased black maternal health mortality. The highest national health expenditures to date, by the way, $3.8 trillion for 2019 and expected to reach at least $6.8 trillion by 2028. But lest I digress. Now, as a doctoral candidate, I truly value reputable and seminal data. However, in discussing the glaring onslaught of SDOH data with colleagues, there is one constant theme. There are no maze associated with these studies. The social determinants of health and mental health impact morbidity, mortality, and thus health and behavioral health outcomes. The industry must go beyond the data to strategic and dedicated action that accounts for the various moving parts. First, substantial funding for staffing, community-based resources, other primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Next, reimbursement, and yes, let's get those ICD-10 CMZ codes expanded and formally implemented by all entities and across all levels of care. I was actually on a national call last week where there were people who had no clue that these codes could be used, documented on, and accessed. Next, meaningful public policy at the state and federal levels to bridge the gaps in care that impact a rising number of citizens. Fourth, quality metrics that define accountability for holistic health equity by organizations, and that holistic is with a W for whole person care, rather than having holes, H-O-L-E-S, in care. These efforts can't exist only on paper, strategic action, or quality improvement plans. They must also transcend short-term fixes to meaningful long-term quality measures that inform and change the culture of practices. Kudos, by the way, to NCQA on their efforts to advance HEDIS and incorporate health equity. Outcome measures must go beyond length of stay, readmissions, denials of care, as well as morbidity and mortality review. They must define the obstacles that prompt these realities with action, action plans. Next, engage in cross-sector collaborations with key stakeholders who get it and will do what is needed to fix it. Healthcare organizations, insurers, funding entities, community-based organizations, practitioners, product developers, plus. These coalitions exist, and I'm fortunate to be involved in several, from the Gravity Project to RISE Association. 
They're inspirational and give me hope toward building an informed and behavioral health sector fueled by a quintile aim that renders truly patient-centric and population-based care at the right cost, right time, by persons who embrace the work and holistic health equity. Okay, I'm done. Research and seats at the table are valuable, but it's time to disrupt the status quo, coordinate and implement action. Our Monitor Monday survey wants to know, how much do your organizations implement sustainable SDOH solutions? Very little, somewhat, a great deal, do not know, does not apply. Well, we'll review the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author, Alfred Sandwich. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, if you're like me, you went out this past weekend to Home Depot or your favorite restaurant to find near chaos in terms of people wearing masks or not and businesses requiring them or not. In the wake of CDC's most recent update to what vaccinated people can do, there's been general confusion among businesses and customers alike as to whether they should be wearing masks or not. It may help to step back and look at the categories of guidance and rules, who they apply to, and how we might have some clarity in the coming days on when to wear masks at work and in businesses. First, for the past 15 months or so, the CDC and other federal agencies mostly have been putting out guidance, recommendations, in terms of mask wearing, social distancing, and other COVID-19 protocols in businesses and workplaces. Because of that, states and local governments have been allowed to establish their own rules or not establish any rules. The most recent CDC guidance on masks is, again, just guidance. And so state and local governments are, again, allowed to establish their own rules. And specific businesses can create their own rules as well as they align with those state and local requirements. The CDC's intent with that most recent guidance on masks, however, was to inform individuals so that they could make personal decisions about safety. In contrast, the CDC guidance for office and other specific work environments has not changed substantially since the height of the pandemic. And that's okay because establishing specific workplace safety requirements is OSHA's job, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But OSHA too has only been giving quote guidance in terms of workplace safety for these past 15 months. President Biden, in his first few days of the administration, required OSHA to write actual requirements for COVID safety in the workplaces so that businesses would know exactly what they were supposed to do about masks and social distancing. OSHA missed the March 15th deadline to release that rule, but some version of the rule has been written and it's been at the White House under final review for the past month. Whatever the rule might ultimately say, it should help businesses, not only in terms of confusing messaging, but also in terms of liability, since as long as businesses follow what OSHA says are safe working conditions, the risk of getting sued by a worker for unsafe work conditions is lessened. A number of problems, however. First, while the CDC has outlined some things that vaccinated people can do that 
non-vaccinated people can't, in the workplace in general, employers have been reluctant to re require vaccines or even ask employees if they've been vaccinated. So OSHA can't just repeat what the CDC has said. At this point, nobody knows what the expected OSHA COVID workplaces rules might say. I suspect that not even the regulators are sure what they will say. Chuck, my suggestion for any business is not to make any drastic changes in how they've set up their businesses under COVID until we get further news about the OSHA rule. Because OSHA may just make you push all those desks apart again. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, the very interesting results from today's Monitor Monday listener survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll learn about a proposal to eliminate the two-midnight rule. With the three-year process of eliminating the Medicare inpatient-only list, an insidious question is circulating among healthcare leaders nationwide. Could the two-midnight rule be next? Learn about a proposed solution called the one-midnight rule. You'll also read about rack targets now underway during the second quarter of 2021. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your subscription today to start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Now is the time for the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fixamnik. Thank you so much, Chuck. So I'm sitting here looking at these results and thinking, what comments can I make? Well, let's see what you all think. How much do your organizations implement sustainable, and that would be the keyword, SDOH solutions? Well, only about 5% of you said very little. Close to 19% said somewhat. 17% said a great deal. So that gives me some hope. But 41% of you just were not sure. Either you're not in the loop of those discussions or truly don't know, which gets me a little concerned about what is going on in your organizations toward developing those sustainable solutions and who is at the table. 17, close to 18% of you said does not apply. And we continue to watch this story and the actions engaged in by our listeners. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, cases being heard at the ALJ are being scheduled back-to-back. -back. This is the result of a court order and a new chief judge. This is a developing story, and joining me now with an update is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Good morning, Chuck. Um, let me start with just uh, sharing uh, kind of what's happened to us with cases that we've been uh, waiting on for uh, three to five years. Uh, recently, we had a statistical sampling initiative, was about 4,000 individual cases aggregated, was 11 days of separate hearings. It was then followed by a home health uh, agency statistically projected case for dates of service 2011 to 2013. We then have been followed with a, a series of DME cases um, uh, statistically projected 1.3 million, 4.7, 700,000, 
dates of service 14, 15, and 16. Uh, then they're scheduling some of the individual hospital hearings, uh, inpatient, outpatient hearing, a couple of IRFs. Uh, tomorrow we have a physical, uh, outpatient physical therapy hearing projected to about $3 million for dates of service 2009 to 2010. We have uh, scheduled a laboratory a hearing that's been sitting around forever for about $9 million, and then a in-home uh, vent case, about a half a million dollars. And all of these uh, seem to be scheduled within a period of uh, about uh, 10 weeks. And so it's really kind of extraordinary that you wait for three to, to five years, and then you see this type of uh, scheduling. And so what uh, we think, of course, is happening is, I mean, look, look at some of the factors. We have this court order to reduce uh, cases, okay? And so that's, that's one factor. And I think what happened uh, during the time, if you just, um, you know, this is somewhat, I guess, on my part, but if you look at a court order and you have 100 evaluation and management code cases that are downcoded and maybe $25 a case, and you schedule that, uh, then you've reduced the backload by 100 cases. But if you have a statistically projected case that's worth $5 million, then that's only uh, one case and takes a, a lot of work for the judge to write up. And so I think there's been a disincentive to try these cases uh, in an effort to comply with the court order to reduce the backload. Um, the backlog. So I, I think that's what we're seeing. We also um, know we have a new chief judge who indicated that uh, he's recognized these uh, statistically projected big box cases have been delayed and um, uh, and they have to get scheduled. I mean, there's significant due process uh, challenges uh, in. Uh, delaying these cases to talk about 09 and 2010 cases being finally heard in 2021, why three million dollars is being withheld and putting an entity out of business is just uh, hard to say. It's a hearing at a meaningful time and in a meaningful manner. So I think the future will bring faster cases, shorter backlog, but right now. Uh, we find ourselves getting uh, inundated with uh, hearings uh, that are scheduled that the judges are not inclined to uh, adjourn um, unless there's a strict, strict conflict. Thank you, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was Andrew Walker. Drew was a managing partner at Walker and Associates. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alephix Center, David Glazier, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Andrew Walker reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, there's not going to be a Monitor Monday next Monday in observance of Memorial Day. But we'll be back Monday, June 7th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a good week, everybody, and a compliant Memorial Day weekend. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.